It's the M&S Monthly Podcast Show. Michael and Simon will share their best tips and secrets to provide inspiration for fellow entrepreneurs and business leaders. I hope you like the show. Let's get it started. And on today's M&S Monthly Podcast Show, Simon and Michael are going to be talking about something they were speaking about last week. Small ticket items versus big ticket items and how those different products or services need to be cultivated when dealing with your clients. Typically, SMEs have many small ticket items versus corporates who have big ticket item sales. And today on today's MichaelCrane.live podcast, we are going to be speaking about the differences between the two price tags. And more importantly, how we culture or cultivate those clients. So Simon, welcome on the show today, the MS monthly podcast show. What's your interpretation of small ticket items? These are the products and services that we often start our businesses with, I believe. You know, when, when I look at the amount of different clients that I've worked with, um, they have an idea, a concept, a product, uh, which we, we work on, uh, we market, and we launch. And... In the main, they are small ticket uh, items, if you like. Um, there's always the exception to the rule, isn't there? But in the main, they're small ticket items. And we build on that in time. You know, we, we start with product A and then we add gradually when product A is selling at a price, uh, we will add bolt-ons to that or other services that could add on top of that to start to build it up. But we start with, you know, a quite a small range, usually a small range of products, a small range of prices. And we're really just trying to find our way into the marketplace with something that we feel the marketplace will accept. I think in my introduction on the show today, I mentioned that small companies typically have small ticket items, not only in what they buy from a supplier, but what they provide as well. And I think that was unfair because small businesses can actually buy big items. But how do corporate companies change the dynamics yeah, I think corporate have changed the dynamics because what the opposite of what you said at the beginning is is happening, isn't it? And we're seeing this with companies like Amazon that come up with products like Amazon Prime, which in one sense is a small ticket subscription based products uh, that that are almost dare I use the word stealing the business away from the smaller companies because they entice you know, the buyer 
with such a small ticket price. And it's all based on volume, the kind of volume that we can't achieve as a smaller business. And I think there's this seesaw starting to happen, you know, where the, the bigger companies are coming out with more and more product to lower and lower prices. And as SMEs, we're having to push our prices up. You know, we're having to 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 make the profit in the business. We're doing less and less small, high volume stuff, and we're doing more and more um, higher ticket prices that are generating the profits, but we're not selling as much. And we're being very generalistic, aren't we? Here, we're being, we are being quite generalistic, uh, accepting that there might be listeners screaming at us right now, saying, "Well, that's not my business. <laughs> that's not how my business operates." So I do accept that in the world of business, it's extremely diverse. And there are many, many different pricing models, product models out there. But when we were talking, we we thought there was a place to have the conversation to say, isn't it interesting how the market has developed over recent years as well, where the big players, as they've got bigger and bigger and bigger, they seem to be releasing more and more lower and lower priced items uh, that that uh, trap people in. And I'm going to use the word trap because I felt a bit trapped this morning. I'll give you an example, Michael. I had an Apple TV subscription. I don't ever watch Apple TV. I don't have an Apple. I have an iPhone. Um, but it was free for 12 months or something like that. And so I subscribed to it. I thought, well, you never know. might use it. And then all of a sudden today... I get the notice that my annual subscription is due for renewal and it's going to automatically renew and they're going to start charging me £7.49 a month. And I thought, you know, I had one thought along the lines of, well, that's not a lot of money. Perhaps I'll just let it do it, you know, let it go through because it's a bit of a hassle. I've got to find my Apple ID. I've got to find a way of logging on. I've got to go in. I've got to manually cancel this subscription um and you know one part of you says that's a lot of ag- aggravation let's just allow the £7.49 to go through but £7.49 a month if a million people thought like that that's seven and a half million pounds going to apple and we're not even benefiting from a service <laughs> so i think you know it's interesting how the market has developed in that way and that we have to be proactive as businesses and make sure we don't get caught in the trap of all these small subscriptions from Norton and Apple and all these other organizations that that throw something at you, you sign up to it, and then before you know it, when you add it all up, it's coming to 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 pound a month going out of the business, which is actually pure profit. I think it's fair to say that there is a low emotion with a low price point. And Apple, Amazon, and many other companies hit you with a recurring model, which is low enough price-wise for you not to worry about. But what I want to ask you here on the next question is, in your business, would you consider your price of your service low ticket or high ticket? 
I would say that over the years since I started, my ticket price has gone up from low to medium, maybe even to, to high in some areas. But I'd like to add to that that the, the game, I think, the game of profitability and sustainability lies in small businesses having a, almost a hybrid model. You know, and some of the clients that I'm working with right now, their greatest success is coming by finding their own subscription model as well as their product model. And they're benefiting from growth in people subscribing because they can see value in subscribing to the smaller business and they can see value in the price of the products that they buy from them. And they've got a range now. And I think it's really important for businesses right now to sit down, review their product range, review their pricing range and say, is it a range? Do we have a good range here of both low, medium and high ticket offers and a journey, a client journey that might take a client in maybe at the lower end and build them through to medium to high as that client gets to know you, like you, trust you and and build a relationship with you. They're willing to spend more with you because they can see the value. So I think I'm right in saying that you consider your price point is a high ticket item. Yes. Does that that mean you cultivate your high-ticket clients in a different way you do your small-ticket clients? Yes, I will draw the analogy, (coughs) excuse me, I will draw the analogy here of the airline industry. You know, you get on a flight to America and we're all going to arrive at the same time We're all going to have the same journey in one sense, but some people are having a nice sleep in first class and others are crammed into economy. And then there's a whole range of people in the middle somewhere that have paid different prices for different seats. But it's the same journey. It's the same outcome, but it's the experience that you're getting along the way. So if I can create in my business a high ticket price, then what I've got to make sure I'm doing for that high ticket price is giving a really good experience of my, of my business, of that journey with that client and the client enjoying it, but also giving them the option that if that isn't affordable for them right now or what they want to spend right now, there's still another option back here in economy that still gives a good outcome and a good service, but it doesn't perhaps have all the bells and whistles. What are some of the things you do for your first class customers? Customers that are buying into your company right now, where do you go over and above? Yeah, well, my business is very personal, of course. It's all about coaching and working with individuals. Um, I think the probably the first class section involves working with businesses and their teams. 
So we're not just coaching the business owner. We're working with their leadership team. We're looking at ways that that leadership team can develop. We have leadership training modules, both e-learning and, you know, delivery modules. So we can bring those into play. Uh, We can add to that one-to-one coaching with any individuals that might be experiencing difficulties at the moment. You know, it's a real challenge for a lot of leaders out there at the moment with this hybrid working, this hybrid working concept. So there's much that we can do to make sure that we are giving added value in the hours that we offer clients in answering emails, being on hand, answering phone calls, that a client that doesn't want that level of service and wants to pay less where we have a more structured meeting approach, you know, and it's very specific coaching one individual for a certain number of hours each month. And we don't go beyond that. um, Then that's the differentiator. How are you actually delivering a first class service to your clients that are paying you the, the, the most money? We work very closely with them. We speak to them often. We get feedback from them to make sure that they're getting what they're seeking. The the biggest area for me, Michael, is we tailor the service. So, you know, we're really designing the service, designing what the client needs based around what they're telling us. And so it's that making sure that we deliver on that specifically and where there's opportunity you know, go the extra mile. We will introduce clients to each other. We will bring mentors in. We will seek other services uh, from the manufacturing growth service or grants, or if they're looking to export, uh, tap into the government export advisors and areas like that. Now, we we might also say that we do that for economy, if you like, for the economy clients, but I think that's less so. Their needs are not so great. At this stage, you know, maybe they're in the early stages of growing their business and seeking advice. Uh, and we want to make sure that for them to take and apply that advice, it's simpler and more straightforward. And at where we've got first class, it's a more complex service. So the small ticket clients. Is that a basic service? And if it is a basic service. What does basic look like for you? And I asked that question because so many clients who come to you, to me in business, who start small, have huge potential to work up to become a first-class service taker, a first-class seat holder, And all too often, I think, we miss out. And I say we as entrepreneurs, as a community, we miss out on not delivering enough quality. And when I say quality, I mean sending a simple birthday card or a Christmas card to say thank you. We appreciate your business. Simple stuff like that enables that client to grow. And I think we miss out thousands as entrepreneurs, business owners, 
because we don't pay enough attention to our small, most valuable clients. Yes, I agree entirely. There's two things I'd like to say about that, if I may. I'd like to look at one particular industry, restaurants, for example. I've always argued that restaurant owners should capture the details of the people visiting their restaurants. They should capture their name, their email address, their date of birth. Yeah, they're just those simple things, their mobile phone number. They should capture them because that data is invaluable to then market those clients in a way to say, you know, you visited the restaurant six months ago. It's your birthday next week. Come and have a special time. You know, we've got a great surprise for you. We've got a special offer for you. You can't do that if you don't know when it's people's birthdays. It's a classic You know, what do people love to do on their birthday? They love to be taken out for a meal. They love to go out. And I think they're missing a trip. Now, restaurant owners have argued with me on this in the past that, you know, it's not the place when someone's sitting down for a meal or coming into the restaurant to start taking their details. But haven't we started doing that now with COVID? You know, you go into a restaurant, you have to scan your app or you have to fill in a piece of paper that gives your name, your telephone number. Why not? add the date of birth to that. So we've suddenly just accepted that we can, because we have to collect people's details. And I think restaurants will miss a trick now. And they are missing a trick already because they're still only asking for people's name and telephone number, and they should be asking for their date of birth. Um, so I think, I think that's one important point. Um, and the other, the other point for me is that, If I look at my own experience in business, where I'm buying, for example, I found, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will agree with me here, that, you know, I'm buying from company A, for example, yeah, and I'm buying some services. And then in time, I think, actually, I need something extra. I need more. And I find company B, that's offering that element that company A don't offer. And now I'm dealing with company A, company B, and possibly even company C. And the reason why I've gone down that route, maybe I want to spread my risk, I don't know. But the main reason I find I've gone down that route is because I didn't even know that company A could do the things that I've gone to company B and C for. And that's where we're missing a trick as business owners. Our own clients don't know all the things that we do. And I'll go back to the airline analogy, Michael, because airlines are genius at this. If you're an economy passenger, you don't get shown in through the back door straight into economy. You get taken in the front door and you get to see what first class looks like. And, and premium and economy plus before you get into your economy seat. So you know exactly what products and services are available on that airline when you end up sitting in your squashed in seat right at the back by the toilets. I've never seen the economy seats. <laughs> yeah. 
Today's show has been sponsored by www.teameasycrane.co.uk. We help you build your business and grow recurring profits. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to hit the subscribe button. I want to ask, I want to ask you, what data do you think is essential in collecting on your prospect? Someone who you think is an ideal client. Where do you start? I suppose it depends what industry you're in, but if you're in the industry that, like mine, where it's professional services, we do have an advantage, I think, because we can ask people for more information when, we're, when we start working with them. You know, one of the things that we do is a fact find. And in that fact find, you can collect a lot of information about the business's aspirations, where they want to be in a year's time, you know, all the, all the products and services that they might need. You can do that. It is more difficult if you're a restaurant, of course, because you want people to have an experience when they walk in the door and not to have to fill in a 20-page questionnaire. But there are ways these things can be done. And you just want to collect in the restaurant's case, really all you need is a date of birth, an email address, and a phone number, don't you? Wow. If you had that on every single person that had ever walked into your restaurant, you'd have an incredible database and you'd have people coming back for a reason, provided your food is good, of course. They won't come back if it's not. It's a really interesting point you make, Simon, because you're referring to restaurants, but I think Deliveroo and Just Eat do this really, really well. They have the data, they know their marketplace, and they're taking custom from the restaurant. And can you believe you can get a McDonald's Big Mac on Deliveroo now, delivered to your door for $7.99 or less? How do they do it when company, uh, restaurants, bigger company uh, restaurants, more, more uh, sustained restaurants that have been around for years, how does a new company come into the market and completely disrupt it for yeah. cheap? I think you're hitting the nail on the head, Michael, and I hope people just stop a second and listen to what you've just said. Because what you've highlighted is the real value, the immense value of data and collecting good data on your clients and your prospects. You can't, I can't put a price on collecting that value. And this is why these companies appear out of nowhere and seem to become an almost an overnight success. You know, they're worth millions within years of setting up because from day one, they managed, they collected and they managed data. And the data was the very thing that they used to drive sales. And SMEs are generally quite nervous about doing that. And in fact, I was speaking to a a client the other day and the first thing he threw at me was GDPR. I can't do it because of GDPR, but Deliveroo can do it. 
Uber can do it. Amazon can do it. They've all got GDPR. So I think GDPR is a misnomer. It's, it's become an excuse, in a way, for not doing what we could and should be doing. What we have to be careful of with GDPR is that we manage that data well and we protect that data well. And when a client or a prospect wants to come off that data, we make sure that happens. That's really what GDPR is all about. But in the meantime, we should be collecting good data and using it to drive our business. And harvesting that data in the right way. Because if Deliveroo can harvest a customer that only pays them $7.99 every so often, there's an awful lot of potential there. I remember a courier firm some years ago called CityLink, is initial, I think, CityLink. And I was a customer of this courier firm. I wasn't a big spender. By no means, but I was a regular monthly spender. I was always astonished one day when a letter dropped through my letterbox and it said, you're not spending enough money. We are going to close your account. The moral of this story is that company, a couple of years later, went bust. Because although I was a small ticket client to them, they needed small ticket, medium ticket, and large ticket clients. And if you're not cultivating business in all sections, you will struggle. Yes. Yes, I agree with that entirely. That's a great story and a great example of why we need to be good at this and why we need to apply it right across our product range, our price range, our data range. You know, they're the three things that have come out of this conversation, aren't they? So in terms of client size and buying habits, what proportion do you give to each section? It could be time or it could be money from your balance sheet. Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say that we probably spend most of our money on marketing uh, in the smaller end, you know, to win those clients in the first place, don't we? I think there was some research once that said, and I can't remember where it came from, it was it was looking at BT as, as a particular model a particular business and it was costing bt something like 10 times the amount of money to acquire a new client than it was for their efforts to retain them and 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 the daft thing was that they were making no efforts to retain them and they were spending all of their time and energy on acquiring. What you end up with then is a massive great big hole in your bucket or in your funnel where lots of, lots of people might be coming in the top, but they don't stay with you. They fall out the bottom. And then you're constantly having to pile people in at the top, but the service is falling out the bottom as well. And so it's very important that we allocate the right amount of time and energy and effort 
into retention strategies, I believe, more so than attraction strategies, because it's going to cost you only a tenth financially to retain your clients and make sure they're happy, make sure they know about all the products and services that you've got. And also, a very interesting thing to uh, exercise to do is to try and find out you know, what products and services are you offering and what products and services are they using that they're getting from competitors as well as from you. Because now your competitor has a foot in the door. And when they have a foot in the door, then your business is at risk. Uh, and, and obviously, we've got to spend money on marketing. We've got to spend money on attracting clients. Um, but, but I wouldn't put the majority of my effort there. I would put more effort into retention. And I totally, totally agree. Let me share a story of a man called Glenn, Glenn Mountney of Valentin Direct. He's a small business owner who has been valeting cars for more than 20 years. Do you know what, Simon? He no longer advertises, has a two-month waiting list, and a 75% retention rate. Many of his clients have stayed with them, him for more than eight years. Wow. If all business owners could hear that story, the power of that, and how that compounds your profitability and your bottom line, that is success. And remember, don't forget, it's a car balloting business. Yeah, but he's, he's managing. He's not only delivering an amazing service, but he's, it would appear to me that he's managing his data and his clients really well. And if he's not advertising for new clients, then he's probably doing something that most of us uh, want to understand how we can do better, but we struggle with. And that is, I call them the two R's, Michael, right? So this, this is easy to remember. We need the two R's in our business. The first is retention. Yeah. How do we retain our clients in the way that he has? Question number one or R number one. The second R is referrals. Do we have a good referral strategy? Do we even ever ask our clients for referrals? And if we do, how do we? How do we follow up and how do we make those uh, a reality? Because there's nothing better than a client that stays with you and then recommends you and refers you to their client network. You know, I think if I got Glenn on the phone, he could tell you or tell us his simple strategy in order to do this. Yes. I can also tell you that the CEO of BT could learn some skills from Glenn, the yes. balloting expert 
in keeping his clients. And it's really quite interesting that I would assume that Glenn can't throw as much money as BT can at this. And by the way, it's not the first story I've heard of a corporate who was charging forward, winning all these clients and losing as many clients as they were winning. And it's interesting how they only realized what this was, do, what, what impact this was happening when their growth was constant. It wasn't yes. increasing. And when they looked into the research and the stats, they realized the issue. I could name the company, it's a large multinational company. But why do they get it so wrong when Glenn at Valentin Direct has got it so right? Yes, such a good point, isn't it? But that, that's because they're probably not listening to this podcast, Michael. That's where they're going wrong. Whereas the people that are listening to these podcasts um, are forward-thinking, ambitious entrepreneurs who want to learn they were quite happily listening to you and I waffle on um, and, and, uh, and also get value from conversations which aren't academic. You know, we're not a couple of academics, aren't we? We're not going to talk about all the theories of, of, you know, the world's greatest leaders as such. But we are sharing very practical day-to-day challenges and issues that we're all facing in one shape or another. And we use some generalizations sometimes, but what we want people to be able to do through listening is to be able to take out of these podcasts the little golden nuggets that they hear, to, to put it on pause, to rewind it a little bit, and to hear that a little bit again, and to say, do you know what? They've just waffled on for half an hour. <laughs> Um, but that last five minutes has given me some really good ideas. Uh, and then to tell their friends and share share with their fellow entrepreneurs and people in business that, you know, these kind of podcasts are happening. And um, we're delighted, aren't we, that we're seeing a growing audience for the M&S podcast show in that respect. Indeed. I think uh, a big shout must go out to Glenn Mountley here of Valentin Direct. Interestingly, I think Glenn does the simple stuff really well, like sending out birthday cards, like sending out get well cards, like maybe sending out a small box of chocolate at Christmas for his clients, big or small, compared Mm. to the big mites of the corporates who worry about the fine detail and the complex stuff but sometimes I think they've been missing the small, most detailed effect on the logic, the common sense that sometimes is missed in business. But we've yeah. spoken a lot today about small ticket, big ticket. How do you cultivate? How do you store? How do you manage the data that you collect on your clients? Because we know. We can only remember so much. And when your pipeline is building and growing and developing like it should be, 
How can you manage this data effectively, efficiently for a fruitful relationship with so many in your pipeline? Great question, Michael. Really fantastic question. I would say that there are stages. You know, as you grow, you must invest in this way of managing your data and using your data. Um, And the more you grow, the more sophisticated that is going to have to become. Now, a very simple start is a program like PipeDrive. You know, it's a very simple sales tool. It will help you to literally track and put in all your client details and information, set diary notes, tasks, and see where all your clients are at in your pipeline. It's a very simple tool. Trello also is a very useful tool in that way. You can do a very similar thing with Trello. But as you grow and you get more sophisticated and you get bigger, you know, those tools are very helpful, but they're still quite manual. You're going to think need to think about moving into something that's more automated. And there's programs out there like HubSpot and all sorts of other things. But what you tend to find is that they are so sophisticated, you need to then start thinking about working with those companies that specialize in running those programs. You know, there's a company in Kent called Flowbird who are excellent at helping companies to manage their data, keep in touch with their customers, you know, identify trends, write to them at the right time, that kind of thing. But that needs, you you need a team behind you then. And there might not be a team that you employ, but there'd be a team that you outsource because that's what they specialize in. What do you think the key bits of data to collect are? Well, the most simple and the most obvious, really. You know, it's very helpful to know email addresses, of course, people's names and email addresses. Um, Their other contact information, like where they're located, dates of birth are useful. Um, Even dates that companies were incorporated because a company can have a birthday. Why not um, collect information like that? You know, and then there might be more information that you need from an accounting perspective, from due diligence perspective. But there's all sorts of ways of getting that information from companies' house and through your accountants and what have you. So I don't think it needs to be complicated. I think the only thing I would add to that is mapping all the products and services you have to each one of your clients. So uh, Peter Thompson has a tool that he uses called the Magic Matrix, and it helps you identify that I've got company A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc., and I've got product 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 across the top, and then I've sim- got a simple cross in the box for company A and what products they have, company B, what products they have. It helps you identify what's your best sellers, You can use it to identify what's your most profitable lines and and then make sure you're selling your top 10 most profitable lines into those clients, for example. So there's all sorts of ways of of looking at that. I'd like to add a few header titles in there. Uh, I think one key title is how many staff within the company 
because then you can really start drilling down into how much potential is here. Mm. Another header title that you need to put in your CRM system is length of service. And when I say length of service in numbers of years, someone who has just joined a company may not have the relevant authority to make the purchases that are going to be the biggest, have the biggest impact for you as a supplier. My next header title would be, are they reporting into someone? And if they are, who is that person? Because most times when people leave a company, you need to be building bridges. Certainly from my experience, if you only have one contact within that company, when that one contact leaves, where do you go? What do you do? Someone comes in and replaces that person. What do you think is going to happen? That person is doing the same job as the one before. I'll tell you what happens quite a lot. The new person goes back to who they were buying from before and starts a relationship afresh, irrespective of how long they've been a customer of yours. So I think you really need to start having a mind map on how to interrogate, implement, and really dig down deep within your client base to really, really secure the relationship across many people. Even the accounts person within the company is key to build a relationship with that person because guess what? They pay the bills and nothing is sold until products are paid for. So I think it's really key that you don't just take a CRM system, a customer relationship management system off the shelf and think it's going to be fit for you, fit for purpose. I think you need to start with a blank page and think what are the key attributes that you need in order to develop the relationship. And certainly the industry should go in there as well. So then you can actually start segmenting your customer base. What I typically like to use is gold, silver, bronze. So you can imagine that bronze customers typically, from what I find, will not spend as much as your gold customers because they don't have the numbers of staff there. What's your view on that, Simon? Yeah, I love I love the analogy of bronze, silver, gold, because it's very similar to, you know, the airlines again, first class, premium, economy, etc. And, um, you know, if, if clients know that those offers are there, they know what your gold offer is, your silver offer, that bronze. And they know they're in bronze right now. And they're very happy with that. They like it. But they know they can progress with you. And they know they don't necessarily have to 
get a part of the service from another supplier, they know that you actually do that part of the service as well, which is in the silver range, and you're moving them up in that sense. There are some customers, of course, that might not want all their eggs in one basket and do shop around. Of course, we see that. But I think in the main, most business of business clients value loyalty, value service, value consistency more than they do the price. Actually, I think those values tip the price one. They only look for price if they don't feel they're getting value for money. And to round this podcast off today, people buy from people they like, trust and value. And if we have the right information, not all about business, about personal stuff too, you really do leverage the trust element, the likability element and the friendship element because that's very important. Just as we wrap the show up today, I just want to leave our listeners with one lasting thought. It really doesn't matter how big the client is. Treat them all the same with an added benefit to your prestigious clients because that's where you're going to be making the most profit, ideally. But remember, small acorn or acorns do develop into much bigger things. So work smartly, intelligently across all your clients. And the key here is squeeze the funnel at the bottom, put more in the top, and you will grow your business. Any lasting thoughts from you, Simon? I have a client, Michael, and they have a mantra or a value in their business. No client is too small. And I think it's a lovely mantra because some of the smallest clients they took on when no other competitor would have since become in their top 10 clients. And so it's, you know, all about nurturing our clients and helping them to grow will help us to grow at the same time. And that brings an end to the MS Monthly Podcast Show. Please do not forget to subscribe and listen out for the next episodes in the series. You have been listening to the MS Monthly Podcast Show with Michael and Simon. If you have enjoyed listening today, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you never miss an episode.